0: I'm Amalia Cleland. And I'm Leonie Wizawadi, and welcome back to Artist Statement. Today's guest is Sundance Award winning documentary filmmaker Alexandra Shiva.
1: So in 2021, I actually interned with Alex. Um, I did some transcription work for her documentary called Each and Every Day, uh, which is a film capturing some of the stories of young people who have attempted suicide or struggled with suicidal thoughts. I think at the time it felt especially relevant um, because we were all at home kind of collectively grappling with maintaining good mental health while in isolation during the COVID pandemic. Right, yeah. Um, I'd taken narrative film courses before in high school, so I was familiar with an editing process in which I basically had free reign to manipulate footage in whichever way I wanted to tell a particular story. Uh, but working with Alex was the first time I had been exposed to documentary, which straddles both creative visual art and journalism. Mm. So, over the weeks, as I was exposed to different cuts of the same subject stories, I realized how powerful and complicated the process of documentary making is um, because each iteration highlighted a person's story in a different way as the emphasis shifted.
0: And documentarians spend enormous amounts of time with their subjects um, and they're really privy to their stories in their entirety. And then they have the very challenging task of whittling it down and shaping it in order to truthfully but compactly communicate it to an audience. Um, Amali and I just watched Alex's documentary, This is Home, a Refugee Story, which follows four Syrian refugee families as they try to set up a new life in Baltimore. Um, They navigate an entirely new environment with limited assistance while also dealing with personal trauma, Mm -hmm. a very hostile political climate, and a lot of other challenges of displacement. I think the first thing I was surprised by was how much I laughed while watching it. Yeah. Um, All the families clearly dealt with intense repercussions of their trauma. Their homes had been destroyed. They feared for the safety of their family. And they were still grieving the loss of their country as they knew it. Um, But the documentary very beautifully chose to linger on comic moments. Fathers felt like boys again as they strung together their first English sentences. Um, And the mothers giggled over the way that their children, who proved way more adaptable, (laughs) felt like their teachers.
1: Yeah, I was also really interested in the choice not to particularly stylize the cinematography. Mm. Um, I think a lot of people tend to be really fascinated by deeply tragic stories. And it would have been easy to dramatize these families' trauma. Um, But Alex chose to commit to a more observational documentary style, Mm. focusing on kind of creating a sense of intimacy. Uh, For example, one of the men featured in the documentary had been tortured in prison. Uh, I think they drilled through his leg and pulled out his teeth, like really grisly stuff. But rather than having him tell us that information in a dramatic close-up, uh Alex allows the audience to learn about that experience as he himself explains to the IRC staff why he can't take a job which has him on his feet all day. Um and in that way Alex chooses to expose these moments of vulnerability thoughtfully and simply. Um and paired with some of the more lighthearted moments you were talking about, mm. I think they were really felt all the more deeply. Um, I finished the film feeling close to each of the families rather than just feeling the magnitude of
0: difference between our lived experiences. Yeah, definitely. Um, So here's Alex to tell us about her personal entry into documentary, its unique creative process, and some of the challenges that come with capturing real people's stories. (laughs)
2: So I was, I was studying art history and um, and film and psychology, but majoring in art history at Vassar. And I was also very interested in photography. I was doing something on an art piece, a painting by Poussin, which was Ronaldo and our media. It was about borrowing from one gender to the other. And she was borrowing his strength and he was borrowing her beauty. And so I was very interested in this idea of neither male nor female, and somewhere, you know, in fluidity in gender identity. And then I ended up um, in India. And I remember um, I didn't want to leave. And I did, we did encounter some hijras, which is a a group of considered the third sex of India, neither male nor female, but somewhere in between, who come to weddings and the birth of children and say, give us money and we'll bless you. And if you don't, we'll curse you. That was what they were doing at the time. And um, and I didn't want to leave. And I decided that I was going to come back. I was going to go home, research, and then come back with another friend named Sean McDonald, who was doing his PhD in South Asian culture and language. And we decided we were going to come back and do a photo essay. So it was going to be a photo essay. And we got to we got back to Mumbai um, about six months later, and I realized that it didn't do justice the the stillness of photography did not do justice to this subject matter. And we decided that we were going to find a uh, a camera crew. And that was the beginning.
0: Wow. And after that, you just couldn't stop making documentaries. How Did you know you're going to do that as a
2: profession? I, I mean, it's sort of a bug. And uh, I just, I did, I fell in love with the whole process being in the field. The, and And interestingly enough, the there were a lot of conversations we had about the ethics around who are we filming? Who are we in this situation? What does it mean to be filming? Our camera crew were all, you know, from India, and we would have dialogue about, you know, with this incredible DP named Ajay Narona, and he'd say, I don't, I don't feel comfortable filming the beggars on the street. How are you going to use it? And we would, we would explain that, you know, to omit some of what we're seeing would actually not be um, ethical either, and that we would we really needed to incorporate everything. But he didn't know us at the time, so we would have these very long conversations and about what you show and what you don't show, and and how you film people, and um, and then that sort of carried into the edit room as well. Um, and because we we had made the decision while we were filming that the people we were filming were so poor, and they were at the time working as prostitutes, the hijras that we had met, and we paid them a day rate, basically, what they made in a day, and then we talked about it in the film. So it became very important to, and I've never done that again, but the idea of, it's not that I wouldn't, it it was the right thing Mm -hmm. in that situation, and it was important to also talk about it in the film.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess I, you know, I spent my gap year making my first kind of, like, real documentary out in the American West, and there were a lot of missteps, and it felt like I was figuring out a lot as I went along. Um, and I was wondering if you could speak to some of your, like, favorite, most rewarding aspects of creating a documentary, but also, like, any consistent challenges you find yourself facing.
2: I think. Well, I think the challenges are they're different for different people. And for me, I get I get very emotionally connected to the subjects. I'm putting myself in their heads yeah. and in their hearts all the time, and that can be um, sometimes difficult. Yeah. Because I'm also I'm also trying to figure out a way to cinematically translate their experience to other people. And so if I can't do it. That I can't make it possible for a viewer, so that I find that always challenging, but also rewarding. Mm. Yeah, mm.
1: that is. It feels like you're talking about documentary as a process of revealing and revealing people's stories to an audience who can then like recognize parts of themselves, revealing the subjects to themselves. Um, and I think that's why, like, part of our you know, why Leonie and I agree that art is so important is because it is like an exercise through so many mediums of being able to connect with people who you may be able to relate to, but also extend yourself, you know, beyond your own kind of limits to understand other people's stories. Um, and I want to ask you, why is documentary in particular important?
2: In my opinion, it is um, it is a a way to engender empathy in a large group of people. It's a way to show a part of society or a part of the human experience that someone might not know that they relate to, which is some of what you were saying, and put someone in for 90 minutes or two hours in the experience, just visually, emotionally, in the experience of someone else. Um, So I think it's a tool of engendering empathy. That's how I like to work. Um, It's also can be incredibly entertaining. It's real people. It's, you know, these are, sometimes you can't, you can't write some of the stuff that happens in life, right, so you're just capturing what happens in life.
0: I think Amalia has experience making documentaries and I'm very inexperienced. Um, And so I'd love for you to outline for us beginners the basic stages of making a documentary.
2: I tend to find a subject that I'm really interested in, develop a relationship, then figure out the financing. Um, and then, and then, you know, you hopefully have an incredible producer, which I do named Lindsay McGrew. So that helps a lot. You build a team of people that, you know, you know, that you can really bring that vision together with. Um, and then you start get into the field, which is my favorite part. Mm, okay. Actually, I love all of it. I love the I love the editing room too. It, having a great relationship with your editor mm. is essential because they're writing. They're actually the writer. You know, you're, you're writing this together in the editing room. It's totally different from mm. a narrative where it's storyboarded and then the actors are are cast and then your edit. I mean, the edit is different. All the process that happens at the beginning of a narrative is what happens at the end of a documentary. Right.
1: I think what is terrifying about, for me personally, about making a documentary versus a film is the fact that you, yes, you build relationships with people, you understand that there is a story to be told, but you don't know exactly how that story is going to unfold. In terms of process, I was wondering, do you edit parallel to shooting footage and how much, how much does the story that you think you want to tell like pivot while you pull cuts together?
2: I, well on all of my my probably my last three projects we have begun the edit while we're shooting um, because it's very important to figure out what we're getting what we're not you know what we need more of and sometimes when you're in the field it's very hard to know um, what you're missing so that was we we on this last project we were filming um this is not, the last project is not coming out probably until 2024. So I'm a little hesitant to talk about it. Okay. Um, no but, but we were, um, filming in a hospital and it was, and we were, and Toby, we had the, Toby and Ashley who were editing together. They started working on it while we were shooting in the hospital. There was something not translating on to camera. Even, even when I was looking at the monitor and felt it was translating, the experience of being in the hospital Mm. was part of what was influencing what I was watching. Mm. And so we, we needed that feedback to start getting much more specific and much more granular with the subjects, which we did. Okay, got it. And in that way, this project pivoted.
0: So something that I have dealt with in, I write for a magazine at Yale called The Politic, um, and it's a very interview-based type of magazine. So I at least source 10 people for each article. Um, so I'm kind of curious how you source and pick your subjects. When there are
1: so many people with amazing stories, okay. how do you know who can communicate them well through documentary?
2: There, there are people for documentary that I think is quite different than when you're doing a written piece. Yeah, definitely. Where they become more of themselves when the camera's on. They get really comfortable Mm -hmm. and they're, or they're exactly the same Mm -hmm. when the camera's on. And then there are people who are are overly aware of the camera. It makes them anxious and you feel that they have pulled away. And so that's, sometimes it's not just the story. It's the, um, it's how someone, can translate that on camera. And so it, it can be quite complicated because for This Is Home, there was a family that was less comfortable being on camera. Their story was quite different from some of the other storylines, and it was very important to show them. And the way that that worked and the way that we were able to translate the intimacy that I was having with those subjects was just to spend more and more and more time with them. So, you know the more sometimes the more the camera is around, the less discomfort there is with the camera. Right. Um, and the more they they know who's on the other side of the camera mm-hmm. and really understand them, the less discomfort there is.
1: Yeah. Um, and I think you've addressed this a little bit before, but I was wondering, then, you know, because it is such a process of getting to know your Your subjects, and you've mentioned again and again that this is a process that takes time, and for some, more time than others. Um, But obviously, you start a documentary because you have this seed of an idea and the story that needs to be told. Um, But at what point do you kind of decide the thesis of the documentary? And do documentaries like need a thesis at all, or are they simply like a, a capturing?
2: I actually think it can be. It can be any of the above. I mean, I think that there are people who have a thesis. They go in. They the, the story. The story is matching up with the thesis, and it works. And it's there. You go right. And then there are people who um, are are really feeling their way through. They they know that there's something bigger and more important that needs to be told, and they're just trying to figure it out in the field and in the edit room and figuring out what what is what is the essence of what has happened or what is the essence of what has been documented.
0: Hmm.
2: And I think of it as a collab. I mean, my experience is that there's a lot of collaboration, you know, this Mm -hmm. is home was a collaboration with many of the subjects, not literally, but the, the, the more you get to know someone and the more you develop a relationship with them, it does become a kind of collaboration you know, what is important to be for the world to know about the experience that they're having.
0: I've always been interested in how directors in non-documentaries kind of have a specific style or creative vision that feels a little bit more obvious in their role. But I can Mm -hmm. imagine when you're a director of documentaries, that role is not as clear. And like you said, you're working with a lot of things that are very malleable, subjects, storylines, narratives. So how would you you know, draw. I guess. What are the, the distinctions between a director of documentaries and director of
2: other genres? Ooh. Um, again, it really depends on the filmmaker. I think that there are documentary filmmakers that have an incredibly stylized approach. They have. They create a world. They're they're filming a world, but they create a special world in the way that they film it. There's. You know there are there are so many different tools now that are being used in documentaries that are that have a relationship to narrative to, to scripted. So I think it, it depends on the person. My favorite documentaries have always been Frederick Wiseman. So I love you know observational. I I have always longed to make something that's truly observational, and um, it's not always easy because you have to you actually do have to be. You can't really move locations so easily. It has to be in a place. And if you think about Wiseman's films, they're often very much rooted in an an institution or specific location. Um, But I, 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 love being observational and trying to disrupt as little as possible, knowing that of course the camera completely changes the dynamic. There's no way it can't, but, you know, being a fly on the wall and, finding a way to view but not interfere. And then stylistically, I think that the most recent project that we're working on, our, our DP was incredible and really knew how to capture, be close, but not too close. There's a way in which he's just, mm-hmm. it's he's really able to move through spaces and not take up space that feels sort of, Thrilling.
1: Yeah. No, I want to talk a little bit more about that because I guess, like, you spend so much time with these people, but yet your job is to create this kind of like distillation. um, And there is like narrative you have to pull out. Um, And I guess I'm like asking how do you start to make those decisions? What does a fair portrayal mean? Um, To what degree is maintaining objectivity important? And does it even exist? Or in directing a documentary, do you have to kind of like concede that you are a part of it and will distort it? And that is just something that you have to, you know, realize and move forward with the process of making it.
2: I don't think that I'm objective. I don't think I can maintain true objectivity. Um, I do think that I'm able to keep myself enough at a remove and, and always be thinking about what are we trying to accomplish? What is the, what is the, what is the most important um, root of why this project is happening? And then, and then use that as the spine throughout the process. So I'm always trying to make sure that I'm keeping a viewer engaged and telling a story, but I also feel very strongly that it has to be connected to the truth. So there, there are many, many choices in the field and then 10 times more choices in the editing room I always make sure when we're editing, one of the biggest concerns is that I want someone to recognize themselves very clearly when they watch. Mm -hmm. And so the subject does not feel in any way that they are being misrepresented. Mm -hmm. They may not love the side of themselves that's being shown Mm. always, but it's definitely them and they see themselves. Yeah. So I think that's, that's always sort of a guiding principle.
1: Yeah.
2: What is it like... To have the participants of the documentary
0: watch themselves on screen, you're watching their reaction. And also for them to have the, you know, see the world react to their story. Is it always positive? And is there
2: maybe a particular reaction that has stuck with you? There was there was something from Stage Door where someone says a line that I was nervous that they were not going to like. Um and then we were, and we were all piled into a hotel room and it was premiering itself by Southwest. And we were piled in a hotel room and we were watching, and they say the line. And I looked at her and nothing happened. And I was like, okay, okay, I can breathe. And then we went to dinner later that night and she repeated the line. And I was like, oh, right. She believes that is her narrative. That's, she believes this. Mm. So it it was just validating what she believes. Mm. When we screened for the subjects of This Is Home, we actually put all of the staff saw it in one area Mm -hmm. and saw it in English. And then we had subtitled it in Arabic and all the subjects watched it in Arabic. Mm -hmm. And I think that when when you see yourself, you might have a reaction, but when you're wife sees you or your husband sees that there's there was something about seeing it in a community mm. that I think is really important I don't generally ever show a subject a film alone because it can be incredibly overstimulating mm-hmm. to watch yourself I actually made a personal documentary that I have yet to release and so I I, I think it's given me a lot of really personal empathy mm-hmm. with subjects for that experience mm because it's very hard to watch yourself and it's very hard to be objective. It becomes, it starts to take on a life of its own and it becomes something outside of the person in the film when there are more people watching it together somehow, even if they're in the film.
1: Leonie and I would love to hear a little bit about This Is Home specifically. The subjects have clearly dealt with a lot of trauma, but I found myself as a viewer kind of like smiling through a lot of the film um, and laughing along with the subjects as they muddled through the beginning stages of learning English or navigating Baltimore and um, how did you balance giving their story enough gravity, but also being a story of hope? How do you avoid trauma porn while also recognizing that you know, these people have had like, horrifying and true experiences?
2: I think humor, because mm-hmm. humor is a sign of human resilience. Mm-hmm. And everywhere, no matter what, people are finding ways to laugh about their own experience somebody else there's there's a there's a there was a lot of humor they they thought this it was ridiculous being in america and having to deal with this or that and you know they there was something the lightness of it i think every time we could use humor in that film we did because it was real they were using it too but that really helped
0: I love that, especially because in my own life, I really turned to humor. (laughs) And it's, I think, you know, a really, also just a really, it connects us. Like, I think as the, when we were watching and laughing, I just felt connected to the film.
1: One thing we noticed was that in terms of the attitude of the women and men when first adjusting to life in the U.S., the women were more hopeful, entrepreneurial, and adaptable. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the gender dynamics you encountered? I think something I was specifically interested in was the first time that a staff member of the IRC told Khaldun that both him and Yasmin were supposed to be working. Um, And he kind of, you know, signaled no, and she stayed quiet. But then in an interview, she mentioned that she was you know, being able to work and drive and be independent was one of the things that she was most looking forward to about a life in the U.S. Right. I think
2: there's a lot of... Um, someone, when someone from IRC who watched it used the term dignity preservation. I think that for the men, it is inc- it, it's exploding their sense of self And everything that they understand, they're supposed to provide, they're the one that works. They, you know, they made a lot more money at home. They had many more skills that were usable at home. Their wife had very few options at home, but everyone was okay with that. So all of a sudden to come, or it seemed like everyone was okay with that. So to come to another country and hear your wife's going to have to work, you're going to be doing something that is so basic. Um, It's just, there's a lot of shame and I think it, t- you know, having your children be able to learn the language before you, it's just, it's very, very, very hard, I think, mm-hmm. for the men in those particular cultural dynamics, right? So for this, for this group of people, and this is home, what things look like at home versus here, it just became more and more alienating. Mm-hmm. It's a huge adjustment. Yeah and and not it's a huge adjustment for the women too but i think there's an empowerment piece which is you're so good at cooking you could do this for work you're so good at taking taking care of children you could sort of work anywhere it becomes the opposite the only thing i'll say about the IR, that scene with the irc workers is that those those workers have 8 months in that place to help someone like caldoun get comfortable with this idea
1: mm-hmm. That's and, so,
2: yeah. and to have a woman telling him what to do is already right. an assault to his dignity. That's so interesting to me. I, um,
0: over the summer, I was working at a train station in Vienna, Austria, um, helping with the reception of Ukrainian refugees. And something that basically my job was to outline to people when they arrive— Literally off the train, you know what their rights are, what they, you know, what the the amount of money that they're allowed to get, the amount of groceries, um, how long they can stay in a country, but without having a job. Once they have a job, what the protocol is, all of that. Um, I speak a little bit of Russian, um, very very broken Russian, um, but Ukrainians. While they all understand and speak Russian, they sometimes were very uncomfortable with the fact that I was speaking the language of their enemy. And they Mm -hmm. made that very clear to me. Um, And so I think especially when someone is in a crisis and they are trying to express themselves but they can't express themselves fully, it feels really limiting. And I was supposed to be their support system in some ways and their guide. Um, And it just, that barrier made it very difficult. So I know that you don't speak Arabic, so I wanted to know how exactly you communicated with the families you were working with and how that, you know, affected the stories that you told.
2: Well, I always had an interpreter with me, always, you know, no matter what, there was always an interpreter who could help. Um, But there's something about, I remember the interview with Khaldun where I had an interpreter right behind me. And... I didn't actually know what he was saying until it was repeated, but it didn't matter. The emotional content was so clear that it didn't matter. Yeah, I... think that's an incredible experience to, to witness. I mean, I was blown away by his interview without actually understanding it. In the, I mean, I understood in the moment, but after it was... But he would say a lot... He would say something to me, and I would know emotionally what he was saying even though I didn't understand the words yeah
0: yeah I, I mean I have chills right now I think I experienced that um multiple times while I was working um in Austria and it's funny how I think when you're in a moment of a language barrier you emotionally express yourself like just maybe with your face in a way that I or physically in a way that I've never experienced before because it's just you can't ext- you can't articulate yourself I just have one more question, kind of also relating to my refugee work, Um, but something that I was so struck by with um, the Ukrainian refugees, which were mainly children and women because a lot of the men were staying back to fight, um, was specifically the role that children play in crisis because Hmm. they can be, I think, the most emotional in some ways because they react immediately to their surroundings. But at the same time, they're the most hopeful. So I was curious to hear about, you know, your
2: experience working with children on set. I mean, kids are resilient. You know, they are and they're the ones who learn language faster and they're the ones who adapt faster and make friends and feel, you know, they don't feel, especially if someone's five years old, 10 years old, you know, the they need to play. Part of their life is still play. And you can play anywhere. Um, I love watching the kids. I do think it's, I think it's so much of an immigrant experience too in this country. It's like, that's how people, that's how it's always been. It's the idea of people coming and wanting a better life for their children. Okay,
1: Alex, we have like one or two questions left for you. Um, What is one documentary you think that everyone should watch?
2: Oh, how can I answer that? There's so many.
1: Just pick one I mean, that is like off the top of your head. It doesn't have to be your all time answer. But well, like, right I mean, around. Grey
2: Gardens is my all time favorite. Okay. So if you haven't seen Grey Gardens, watch Grey Gardens. Okay. It's the Maisels, hmm. it's shot, I think, in 70 something. Uh-huh. It's in- unbelievable.
0: Okay. Um,
2: what else are just, I mean, Paris is Burning is one of my absolute favorites. Yeah, favorite.
1: that's amazing. That's,
2: I think that inspired me to end up making the documentary in India. I mean, really? that's, yeah, I had seen that and loved it. I mean, I was very, very inspired by that.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, oh, I loved the movie that won the Oscar a few years ago called Honeyland.
1: Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. That was a lot of what inspired um, my gapier year documentary. We did not get close, but it was nice to have that inspiration. <laughs> um,
2: you know what? We often don't get close to the things that <laughs> inspire us, but we aspire to them. So exactly. it's okay. They're aspirational yeah. for a reason. Exactly. Thank
0: you for listening to this episode, and a huge thanks to Alex for chatting with us today. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did.
1: We highly recommend checking out her documentaries, and Leonie and I will also be taking Alex up on her recommendations. We'll catch you next time on Artist Statement.